0: And it seems to me that there's a lot of smoke here to the claim that the government itself shut down a lot of discussion of this theory because they were embarrassed about their own link to the Wuhan lab. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlott.
0: Well, Corey, we've got a lot to
2: talk about today. I'm just exhausted even thinking about it. Where are we going to start? It's a lot to cover. First things first, coming up, unverified documents released by Project Veritas links the origin of COVID to gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. Now, unsurprisingly, the video detailing these documents blew up in conservative media. We take a look at those claims. And then Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Trump beef over vaccine boosters, followed by new allegations that the Biden administration coordinated with the National School Board Association to authorize using the Patriot Act against parents who clash with school boards. And a video is going viral on TikTok that I can't wait to show you guys. But first things first, this week, President Biden threw his political capital behind an issue central to many Democrats, and that's voting rights. While in Atlanta, Biden said that he would support an exception to the filibuster. I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills debate them vote
0: let the majority prevail and if that bare minimum is blocked we have no option but to change the senate rules including getting rid of the filibuster
2: for this now before we get into the merits of those bills i just want to ask you to what do we think of this filibuster carve out like getting rid of the filibuster is this a good idea for the democrats is this a good precedent to set well i think in general like Right now,
0: the Senate as a body is in many ways not a majoritarian body because of the nature of two senators coming from each state. And you have these weird results by nature of our Constitution where, uh, for instance, in 2018, Democrats got 12 million more votes for U.S. Senate elections around the country but still lost ground in the election. And that's pretty standard for Democrats. They often get more votes over time uh, in the U.S. Senate and uh, still come out with fewer people in the Senate. So in many ways, just by nature of the Senate and how it's structured, it's an anti-majoritarian institution. And then you tack on the Electoral College and the fact that Democrats have lost Uh, have won the popular vote in seven out of eight of the past elections, but obviously didn't win seven out of the eight past presidential elections. So uh, in many ways, there are so many anti-majoritarian functions in the U.S. government or parts of the U.S. Constitution. I don't think we need to add anything else. And the filibuster is not in the Constitution. The only thing in the Constitution that, that speaks to the filibuster is the fact that Congress can set its own rules. And they've changed it going all the way back to Aaron Burr, You know, to 1917, where they instituted cloture in the first place, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it was two-thirds at that time, and then in the 70s, they changed it to 60 votes, and then under Democrats, they said that if you're approving congressional nominees for executive uh, branch jobs, it's only 50 votes, then McConnell added the 50-vote threshold for for, uh, the Supreme Court, so this is not new. Like Changing the filibuster is not changing the Constitution. It's a rule within the Senate. And anything that can make the institution more majoritarian, I'm for. But can it backfire on the Democrats, say, if the Republicans were to take back the House and the Senate? It certainly could. Uh, and for me, I think of it less as a whether you know if I'm putting on a partisan hat or not and just saying, do I want the institution to be more majoritarian or not And I would want it to be more majoritarian because I think these results are counterintuitive and bill after bill, you have the vast majority of the American people supporting certain things, but we can't make any progress on those things because you need 60 votes, which means that and you know a very small amount of people can block, uh, if you look at overall population of the United States could block. Uh, progress on, on a lot of things. Well,
2: let's look at the issue at hand. Are voting rights really under attack in America? Or is that something that's just being blown out of proportion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I one of the questions that I have about this, this isn't something that I know a ton about or really claim to, and so I think it can come at it as someone who doesn't have a huge background in it. And, you know, I find it interesting that all states require a social security number or a photo ID to register to vote. And so I wonder, like, is a potential solution maybe requiring photo ID or social security when you actually go to vote? I mean, theoretically, why should it be harder to vote than it is to register? And why why wouldn't you make that kind of more of an equal balance sort of uh, baseline? Because it doesn't seem unfair or illogical to me to require some sort of identification and proof that you are who you say you are um, when you're at the voting booth. And we require that when you register. So why aren't there more kind of middle ground, maybe more basic baseline reforms that we can make to make sure that people who want to vote and who want to participate in democracy can?
0: Yeah, I think like when when I think of this bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know you did a lot of research on this. It seems like it's hard to find evidence that a lot of these changes to voting laws have had a huge impact on turnout in elections, et cetera. Like, what do we know about that? You mean the
2: changes, like, for instance, like the bills that Georgia and Texas Yeah, basically, this is a
0: response, right, to Georgia, Texas, and a lot of these state laws that are, you know, making it, you know, harder to vote absentee or, uh, you know, requiring voter ID. Like, what do we know about those restrictions, and whether it even you know has any effect on turnout whatsoever? Well, a
2: lot of it's been untested because many of these bills on the state level were passed this past Relatively year. Relatively new, yeah, yeah. And there hasn't been a major election in most states to really test them. But I think we have a lot of data to suggest that, in both directions. For instance, when Republicans lately are trying to pass bills that in the eyes of many, may suppress the vote, or when Democrats are trying to pass bills that open up the vote, they don't really have a strong influence either way in increasing or decreasing the vote. When I look at a lot of the bills that were passed, like for instance, in Georgia and in Texas, all of it seems to target things that were used as the excuse for why Democrats were able to win in 2020. Like they're targeting mail-in ballots, they're targeting, you know, needing to have excuses to have absentee ballots, they're targeting early voting. All of these were things that basically allowed Democrats to have a higher vote turnout in 2020 and led to Biden winning the election. And so it doesn't seem like, you know, there's this narrative that, oh, this is attacking minority voting rights. But there's nothing explicit in any of these bills, whether we're talking about Texas or Georgia, that attacks minority rights in general when it comes to voting. It really is attacking these, uh, I would say these pandemic era regulations like expansive early voting and expansive mail-in ballots, mailing people ballots and things like that. It's attacking those things because those are the things Republicans blame for Trump's loss in
0: 2020. Yeah, I I forget the exact provision. There was something in the original Georgia law that made it harder for like the souls to the polls initiatives to happen? You know, meaning- Uh,
2: It basically just made it where I think they, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they made it where there's no more early voting on Sunday. Yeah. And Sunday early voting was big in African-American community. So that's one of those things that got tied to this was going against uh, African-Americans. But again, there's no explicit language that says, oh, African-Americans can't vote on Sunday. It's just saying we're not doing early voting on Sunday
0: anymore. Well, that's where it concerns me is it feels like a lot of, you know, Anytime there's any political party who seems really motivated to, to make it harder to vote, that mm-hmm. concerns me. Of course, and I think you know, obviously, they're not going to put into the bill, you know, black people can't vote, because yeah, that, sta- that wouldn't stand. That wouldn't stand. You know, yeah. the you know constitutional scrutiny. But it does seem like there is a partisan bend here, because the Brennan Center looked at bills introduced between January first and September twenty seventh of this year, and law- they showed that lawmakers in twenty five states made it easier for people to vote. And these are states like New York, California, yeah. Maryland, Massachusetts, while in at least 19 states, they made it more difficult to vote. These are states like Texas, Georgia, Florida, Iowa. We could see the trend, right? And it, it does concern me that there's one party trying to make it harder to vote. And although like I've read some of these studies that say, suggest that you know there's a small, uh, if any, effect on turn out from a lot of these restrictions even a small change can make a difference in a lot of these states where they're razor thin margins and just by the eye test if you look at you know places like Harris County or Atlanta or Michigan where if there if there are long lines to vote and those lines are longer in communities of color and in urban areas uh, just intuitively to me if you have to wait two hours online to vote that is going to suppress the vote you know because not everybody has two hours to wait online to vote.
1: Yeah, I think this really shouldn't be such a partisan issue on one side or the other, because regardless of where you come down, we have an issue right now with electoral integrity being questioned, like in a very widespread national way. And so I think that it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that we just have like clear and consistent laws and that we understand what's going on, because in the end, this doesn't seem like a partisan issue to me because, you know, we all should want to have safe and um Integral elections and you know in the end I think that there are some common-sense middle ground measures and you know, maybe maybe we need to kind of look at this in less of a partisan way because I don't I don't think that there's There's nothing to say that a Republican law that's saying, oh, we want to roll back some of the provisions that we created during COVID is necessarily a terrible thing if we don't have those specific safety measures. But then rolling back things that are longstanding voting rights, of course, that's that's an issue that everyone should be concerned about no matter where you are on the political aisle.
0: Yeah. And Well, I think the politics of this are fascinating, right? Because the big question is what changed for Biden and can he get anything done? And I think from my perspective, I haven't seen any evidence that any of the three major pieces of legislation that are being considered by Congress have any chance of passing because you, you know, back to the filibuster, you need to get Manchin, Sinema, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Kelly, a lot of these people who suggested and been very clear that they don't want to make any changes to the filibuster. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that they've changed their minds. And from my perspective, the the most important part about voting rights right now or even the our laws around voting have to do with the stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes around election administrators uh being replaced in states like Georgia and Michigan with people who explicitly endorse the big lie and in some cases like in you know candidate that we mentioned in Arizona seem to suggest that they would overturn even last election's results which they obviously can't do but just shows you how extreme some of these people are and in these laws, like the Freedom to Vote Act, which is the Mansion uh, version of the Voting Rights Bill, the there's a couple of provisions in here that say like you can sue if you're an election official if you've been removed uh, without cause or you know you need to show like substantial neglect if you remove or malfeasance if you remove an election official. But I'm not sure that any of these things are actually going to solve that problem because a lot of these things could have unintended consequences. Like let's say. The, like the person who endorses the big lies in that office. If you're making it harder to remove an election official, that just means that you're going to make it harder to remove the person
2: who endorses the big lie. Yeah. I think one of the main provisions of these bills that I saw that that leaped out at me, the election day being a federal holiday, I can't really see a good argument against making election day a federal, ar- federal holiday other than you just don't want more people to be able to vote. Yeah, I agree. Or why we
0: don't have a national id in general i think there was what was it the atlantic there was some article that was like hey like we should have a national id but then well, they both, mentioned both republicans everybody and were, nobody's for it yeah because yeah. yeah. i think democrats What what is the democratic reason why i can't remember why, why well it Dem- just
2: it has these you know connotations of oh you have to show your papers or yes. oh you have this you yeah, know, yeah. It, it becomes very whenever you nationalize something like that and also from a libertarian standpoint do you think like a national id would clash with libertarian values
1: yeah i mean i don't think i don't see an issue with having that as an option like i think that sending it out automatically or like i mean it would just be a huge waste of taxpayer money to send it to people who are on the grid and haven't had any issue accessing traditional id but like having that as an option if we're also going to require voter id at the polls which i don't think is a really crazy thing like there are european countries that do that but they also provide the national option i think that's to be honest, as long as it's not really like tied to like a QR code or whatever, like our COVID passports in New York City, like that's where I start getting a little bit like concerned about showing your papers. But I think, you know, having that option for people who are having difficulty getting an ID through their state, I don't see that as a problem.
2: Now on to our second story, a salacious report on the origins of COVID rocked the conservative media sphere this week, even being brought up during Dr. Fauci's Senate committee hearing. The unsubstantiated report alleges that the NIH funded illegal research that created COVID in a lab in Wuhan, China, and that ivermectin is a cure-all for the virus. Now, all of these claims from this unverified document were shared in a Twitter video by Project Veritas and viewed three million times before it was taken down. Project Veritas has obtained never-before-seen military documents regarding the origins of COVID-19 gain of function research, vaccines,
0: potential treatments which have been suppressed, and the government's effort to conceal all of this. Dr. Anthony Fauci has testified many times before Congress stating that the US government was never involved in gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology.
2: So the claims in these documents are not validated, but to understand their significance, we need to back up a little here. The lab leak theory that COVID originated in a lab in Wuhan, China goes back to the very beginning of the pandemic. And it was initially dismissed as a conspiracy theory by mainstream media and outwardly denied by Dr. Fauci in February of 2020. But in November of 2021, real documents came out that showed gain of function research was happening in Wuhan. The U.S. was involved and that scientists at the time were concerned about it. Now, the link between the real Wuhan research and the origins of COVID-19 has never been fully confirmed. But you can see how this background only feeds into this latest video. So this story hits on a few issues that make it significant. There was suppression of information about COVID and dishonesty of those at the very top of our government. Probably not to the extent that Project Veritas made it out to be. But it's a case study of how noble lies fuel conspiracy theories. And that's why we want to get into the facts. So, guys, what do we think about all of these new revelations about the origins of COVID, how it relates to Dr. Fauci. I mean this is a this is a lot to take in.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, to start with the Project Veritas stuff, I think it's worth noting that they've neither been verified nor Um, proven to be fake but the documents do have some kind of red flags in my opinion looking at them one of them is the lack of any classification marks or any um, kind of redactions or blacked out portions which Mm -hmm. are typical of a classified document like they're claiming this is Um, and another thing is just the density of like really big time claims of like you're hitting the the ivermectin the hydroxychloroquine the lab leak the like almost everything just condensed which to me seems a little bit questionable, but I mean, I think at the same time, we also have a huge new trove of Fauci emails that are really significant, including one that goes back all the way to February 1st, where um, it seems like Fauci and Collins were definitely told that the lab leak theory was possible by their top advisors. And within a few days, we have a kind of clean line of Fauci still being told by some it's a 70-30 shot. And he's in contact with these scientists who would later publish a report in Nature that basically dismisses it. And at the same time, he continued to go out and say, this is a conspiracy theory, this isn't true, or I don't know that Fauci himself used those words, but in that document from Nature, those words were used, and he completely dismissed it. And now that we're looking into this a little closer, um, these claims seem to be a lot more valid than we thought, and Peter Daszak's definitely a character. And there's issues of the NIH funding, Eco Alliance, and you know, there's there's a lot more tangled up than we ever had. And there's now proof that this was a noble lie of sorts because you know, from one email, it was international harmony that might be harmed mm-hmm. by by discussing wow. the Wuhan Institute of Virology.
2: So to be clear, Peter Dazic is uh, over EcoHealth Alliance, mm-hmm. and that is the company at the center of a lot of this controversy. They were the ones doing what we now consider to be gain of function research, although they didn't define it as that. And one of the bombshells from this Project Veritas uh, video was that uh, the claim that they're making is that EcoHealth Alliance basically submitted a grant proposal to uh, DARPA which is the Defense uh, Advanced Research Projects Agencies associated with DOD, Department of Defense. And that basically DARPA said, no, this is dangerous. This could lead to um, viruses being made to be stronger, which is what gain-of-function basically is. And they didn't want anything to do with it. And gain-of-function was also outlawed uh, in the United States at that particular time. And essentially, uh, like I think around 2016, EcoHealth Alliance was in talks with the NIH to do a similar project and that that project ended up being the research that was done at the Wuhan lab that now people are saying may not definitive, but may be connected to the origins of COVID-19 oddly enough. So what Fauci basically said in his Senate committee hearing was that the project that they approved at the NIH was not the same grant proposal that was given to DARPA, but project Veritas is basically saying that they were basically saying that they were one and the same. So what, what do we make of all of that?
0: Yeah. I think from my perspective, this, has been a, an evolution for me. And I think part of the, the great privilege of doing this show and running this company is that you kind of cleanse yourself of any bias you come in with. And, and I was re-examining our own reporting from a few months ago when we looked into this EcoHealth Alliance issue the first time. Essentially, it was you know Fauci. The question was whether Fauci lied before Congress when he said the U.S. wasn't funding gain-of-function research. And I think essentially where we came out then was that you know, he could, even though like technically speaking, Fauci could get away with saying the U.S. wasn't funding gain of function research, even with the new revelations, it is his obligation as a public figure to go further and say, look, like even if it's not technically gain of function research, uh, it's basically the same thing, um, which is what that former CDC director, he basically said that he's like, look, whether it's it's gain of function research technically or not. Uh, it's the same thing, basically. Like, we are creating conditions to make something more virulent. And that is what the government was concerned about in the first place. But I think for me, the big revelation was after looking at a lot of this material, and even, you know, over the course of our conversations offline about this, I was expecting to come in here and be like, no, this is overblown, et cetera. But there's a lot of reporting that has kind of flipped me on this. One article in particular, with this Catherine Eban in June of 2021 in Vanity Fair and she essentially goes through, and this is a long article, but essentially goes through just piece by piece why this theory is is very plausible. And she flipped me from thinking it was possible to thinking it is likely that this came from the Wuhan uh, lab. Uh, and one, one just of many pieces of evidence is that there are three places in the world that do this kind of research, this gain of function research at issue here. And one of them is in Wuhan. And, and that's not the only coincidence. You gotta read the article. To me, there's just so many flashing lights, and there's so many implications for the media, for our public health establishment, uh, and I've become way more sympathetic of people who've been making larger claims about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that even, I mean, we can't clearly say that COVID nineteen came from American funded, um, American funded gain of function research, but at the same time, I think the most damning thing, in my opinion, is the fact that now we know that Fauci, from the beginning, at least for a while, he's being told that. This is very possible, if not more probable than the natural theory, and that his public facing persona was completely denying this fact. And it just feeds into this noble lie sort of issue. And at the same time, you know, we're being asked. The American public, some people were wondering, you know, could this have been a a lab leak? And we're being told, don't believe what's in front of your eyes. Like it's China says it came out of a a wet market from a pangolin or a bat soup or whatever it is, and like we believe that at face value, even though we know directly across the street is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, we've known that they've been doing secret Chinese government um, military operations there and research for them, Um, and we know that now that we've were funneling money there. And yet, our medical establishment's instinct was to cover their own asses and to kind of shield us from the truth for international harmony. And, you know, how does calling people conspiracy theorists and saying that was something that could actually have been valid all along like that just completely wears out that term. And it also Shows so much distrust in our public health officials.
2: Yeah, the international harmony thing goes in line with uh, EcoHealth's alliance. One of their big things was this concept of one health, and so that definitely mm-hmm. goes in line with that.
0: Could I could I add something to that? Because I, I was actually cataloging the different biases that led us here as I was reading through some of this material, and here are my four. Uh, example like the question is what is why is this a noble lie or another kind of i'm almost on just like it's a lie or people are even lying to themselves here and here's where i come out here is like there was there was a desire not to piss off china early mm-hmm. on, because of various reasons, like we collaborate with them, etc. There was a, a desire not to appear racist. I think once Trump injected himself into this conversation, I think the the larger public health establishment, the government, the media immediately had this reaction, which was to be like, you know what, considering the source, we need to basically mount everything we possibly can to combat what he's saying. Um, there was, and, and here's where I think the real revelations are for me, is that um, the government itself, the U.S. government, and, and there's a lot of detail here, was, uh, I don't want to use the word cover-up, but it's hard not to. Like, they, they were aware that they were funding gain-of-function research, and it seems to me that there's a lot of smoke here to the claim that the government itself shut down a lot of discussion of this theory because they were embarrassed about their own link to the Wuhan lab. And there was this cozy relationship between the EcoHealth Alliance types, which is a nonprofit, so it's not like-
2: Not you know, unusual.
0: Yeah, it, it, but they had their tentacles all over the US bureaucracy. And, yeah. and you know, the, the guy who ran EcoHealth Alliance was you know instrumental in creating the, the Lancet statement mm-hmm. that, that was one of the most important pieces of evidence that people used to shut down yeah. the Wuhan lab leak theory in the first place. It's astonishing to me like that this isn't a bigger story in traditional media.
1: Absolutely, and I think it expands so much further than just Fauci and the American issue because when you look at the WHO's inspection of the Wuhan lab, China said, "Oh, you can only send certain representatives and Peter Daszak was who we sent." Right. And at the same time, you know, there were there was a database of 22,000 virus samples and sequences that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had, that we knew that they had, that they'd taken offline in September of 2019, around now when we think this may have leaked initially. And they didn't even ask to inspect that. And then they walked away from this inspection. And this is a World Health Organization, all these countries. And we're just accepting a sort of babysat, China's breathing over your shoulder investigation into the origins. I think it's just, it's really concerning just how deep and how international this corruption could be.
0: Yeah, and some of these details are almost like, I feel like they had to have been made up, but they're not, which is like, there's, you know, very early on, there was a paper that was published uh, and it, or published, it was it, there was a, a paper that was released uh, within China that seemed to come to the conclusion that the the lab leak theory was the most plausible. It basically said this is probably where it came from and then then it disappeared. Obviously, there were critical scientists like the ophthalmologist in Wuhan who was ringing the alarms, who... Uh, you know, was suppressed very early on Mm -hmm. in here. And there's a whole revisionist history around who he is or where he came from. And the question for me is like, what do we do now? Why is this important? Obviously, like where the virus comes from is such a critical question that we should be asking. This is the most important story of the past few years, probably the decade, if not longer, we should know where it came from. We should know how to prevent it in the future. We're not asking any of these questions. And the fact that we haven't just shut down all public health Collaboration with an authoritarian government that has shut down any investigation of this, likely yeah. covered up something very significant, to me, is a major scandal
2: that needs to be front and center in everybody's minds right now. Absolutely. Well, Project Veritas. Let's get back to them and the legitimacy of this particular video. This organization has been known for some shady uh, practices. What I can really only define as journalistic entrapment, this idea of trying to play this role of like a gotcha journalist that, you know, tries to fake these videos against certain people. Now, I know you've said that they've done some legitimate reporting about certain things. You know, Ashley Biden's uh, diaries is is an example of that. But there's other things that they've done that have been uh, very fraudulent in nature. So how much can we trust them as an organization? And also, too, what's with the video getting taken down from twitter
0: yeah i think on the first part i almost think that the project veritas although it's like what i think got us back to this story is is almost a sideshow at this point from the larger story like i think like what ricky said was i'm with her on that, that i don't think there's anything yet that we could say for certain about what project veritas has shown i don't mm-hmm. think it necessarily adds any new revelations to this because you know as it stands it's ecohealth applied to one part of the government with one thing and then applied to another part of the government with another thing even if they had proven that they went from DARPA to uh, the NIH, I'm not sure that that is in any way rise to the level of some of these other things that haven't even been yeah. investigated yet. But I think the Project Veritas should invite us to come back to the very fact that Wuhan theories were banned from the internet uh, during critical periods of this, and that is a scandal. And then, then if we, we ask why now is Project Veritas also um, being in some places banned from sharing their video, that to me should invite us to come back and say, are we policing speech on the internet too much? Are we shutting down legitimate discussions of very important issues? And I think the answer has to be yes.
1: Yeah. And to give credit where credit's due, I think in one of their press releases on their website, they did quote one expert that was throwing some like kind of um, more skeptical lens on these documents. So I don't know that I mean, the video does sound like they're presenting it as pretty definitive. But regardless, I think the way that we respond to potentially untrue claims is to respond with the truth and to investigate that. And I think at the moment we don't know. Um, and I think there are much bigger issues at play, but shutting down debate yet again on something that has historically been unfairly suppressed is a really, really bad look, and it's only going to make things worse.
0: Yeah, just to add to that, I, I looked into, you know, why was Project Veritas uh, banned in certain places, and they had multiple strikes, so it's hard to sift through it all, and, mm-hmm. and these internet companies are not always very forthcoming about their reasons, as we know, because a lot mm-hmm. of our content... We've been banned before. We've been, we've <laughs> had content that's been slowed down, ads that were unapproved approved, and it... it and, and I'm somebody who comes from the left, so it's weird for me to say this, but usually it's not left-wing content that's being slowed down. So there is something going on here. Uh, but <laughs> uh, the the actual incident that got Project Veritas banned before this, was basically what, what, what Twitter, I think it was, it was saying was that Basically, it wasn't this particular video that got them banned. They had been banned before and they were circumventing a previous ban. So it's not the content at issue here that Mm -hmm. got them banned. But then I looked into what got them banned and essentially it was a Project Veritas reporter on a sidewalk who was filming in front of the house of a Facebook executive and asking him, How do you define hate speech? Is it just speech that you hate? Are you freezing your own comments now? Uh, To clarify something he had said about banning uh, certain types of hate speech and it appears and it's not immediately here, but it it appears that this guy was on the sidewalk, which I think is protected Mm -hmm. while this guy was the the Facebook executive was running. And so Mm. that violated some term of service. I'm not sure why being on somebody's sidewalk is a violation. What I think happens in these situations, and this is absolute speculation, is that these executives all know each other. <laughs> so this is a Facebook executive who gets treatment that you and I don't get. So if I walk out of this building and Project Veritas is filming me on the streets of New York, I don't think I'm have the ability to get a video banned the way at this guy. That is total speculation. But to me this Seems is plausible. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's worth going back to other moments when Project Veritas has been targeted. And sometimes, you know, across the board, it's been condemned. Like the Ashley Biden um, diary example, the FBI raided them, even though they'd already handed the diary back to the authorities without publishing it because they couldn't determine whether or not it was valid. And that was something that across the board, right and left, people condemned, including the New York Times. And, you know, it it was a dangerous precedent to set for journalism that the FBI is being mobilized to get a document that wasn't even stolen in the first place and so whether or not they've used deceitful tactics in the past I think that it's they've definitely been the target of unfair retribution and retaliation by the government even so it's worth saying you know what are we what are we doing to journalism even if it's the most deceitful or extreme fringe of it defending somebody bringing something to light that potentially may or may not be true you know let's take it with a grain of salt but let's make sure that we're allowing journalists to to blow whistles when there are whistles to potentially be blown
2: absolutely well we've talked about this lab leak theory before i'm sure it'll come up again uh it's a lot to take in but we're going to switch gears here real quick and talk a little bit about an unlikely beef that has broken out between two conservative darlings former president donald trump and governor ron desantis in florida let's just play this clip i watched a couple of politicians be interviewed and one of the questions was, did you get the booster? And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it because they're gutless.
0: Have you gotten the booster?
2: So uh, I've done whatever I did, the the normal shot. And, you know, that at the end of the day is people's individual decisions about what they want to do.
0: Well, I think what's notable about this is there are a few things. Number one is uh, it's, it's just jarring to me to see. Former President Trump talking about the vaccines in this way, and I know that it's it's not a neat story. Like he he was very pro, uh, he was a champion of the vaccine during certain parts of his presidency. He was silent during other parts. His supporters are associated with uh, anti-vaccine sentiments. So I think there was there's I think there's an expectation that he would echo a lot of the skepticism of vaccines. So I number one, I just found it jarring to see him being as strident as he is about this i think most people would be shocked by that uh and two he's taking a shot at one of his biggest supporters and allies uh and somebody who's a fellow traveler in a lot of the same circles but also somebody who's viewed as a major challenger to him not pulling really well against him but is somebody who's very popular on the right this seems like it's the beginning of some kind of 2024 story but ricky what do you make of this
1: I don't know. I mean, I would have been more satisfied with the answer if he just said that's my private medical information or if he just owned it one way or another. I mean, I think he's there's a little bit of a damned if you do damned if you don't situation going on. But I mean, it's kind of it's an interesting break because, you know, Trump has moved as the kind of father of Operation Warp Speed. He's moved away from his base a little bit. And I've heard some people suggest that might be because he's trying to be more moderate. I think it's because he's being consistent from what he originally did, which was kind of push these vaccines through. So I'm I'm not really sure what to make of it. I think, you know, DeSantis probably is a formidable challenge to him, but um I don't know, we'll see.
2: Well, there's two things we know about Trump. Trump loves to take credit for good things. And he did initiate Operation Warp Speed. It did create these vaccines in record time. So that's definitely something that Trump is going to take credit for. And, you know, that that that's that makes total sense that he takes credit for. It. But another thing that we know about Trump is Trump will take out Anyone that he thinks is standing in his way, and right now, DeSantis is the only other name that's really being thrown around as a serious contender in 2024 for the Republican nomination. And we've got to we've got to believe that there's going to be some process. Like even if Trump runs in 2024, there's still going to be a primary. There's still going to be people. I mean, even somebody like uh, Dan, uh, Dan uh, Crenshaw is being looked at as a possible person that would run against Trump. Now, I don't think anybody would succeed against Trump in a Republican primary. Yeah, agreed. But I think like
0: for those who watch Succession,
2: I, I'd see Trump as Logan Roy here. And this is like a shiv moment
0: where you know somebody is is rising up challenging him and Trump's just like swallowing him down. My sense is that DeSantis, if he's smart, doesn't enter the primary if Trump's in it, yeah. and hopes that he gets selected as some kind of vice presidential choice or some other major cabinet position, saves himself for a future election. I think it's very hard to beat Trump in the primary. And I think the the question of you know, Trump being out of step with his base, this is, you know, we can only guess as to what happens with this. My sense is the base moves, not Trump.
2: If, if DeSantis is Shiv in this analogy, then who's cousin Greg? <laughs>
0: Ted Cruz, of Ted course. Ted Cruz. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good yeah. answer.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's a great answer. Uh, well, now to a story that Ricky is fired up over what are the revelations coming out of the Biden administration and the National School Board Association? Um, what exactly is going on here? It's crazy so this story. is
1: all stretching back to a September 29th letter that was sent from the National School Board Association to President Biden that um, that alluded to a trend of threats and violence and outbreaks at school board meetings and considered it or labeled it domestic terrorism and asked, uh, Biden to use the Patriot Act and to you to mobilize the DOJ to investigate these um, interruptions. And I think, you know, it's worth noting that some of the examples they cited, some of them seemed kind of minor and some of them seemed very over the top. In some cases, people were arrested in other cases it didn't seem like they were. Um, and so then the DOJ did almost immediately after decide to get involved in investigating this. Um, And now the issue is that there's a new email that's been retrieved through FOIA that suggests that there's a potential request that came from the... Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, who um, potentially had asked a national school board executive to write that letter in the first place. And so it's one email. It's not the email from him asking or anything that's like completely definitive. I don't think we can say 100%, but it definitely does look questionable. And this has a lot of people asking questions right now because if this does turn out to be true, there's a potential that the Biden administration asked the National School Board Association to write a letter requesting FBI involvement in this issue and if that's the case and they use that letter as the reason to become involved at a federal level um, that could potentially be really sketchy and really strange and i think it's worth noting that um that a spokesperson from the Department of Education denied this was the case. So we'll have to see if there's any other evidence that suggests that it was. But I think it's a worthwhile story to talk about. Sounds
2: like collusion. <clears throat> <laughs> well, nobody
0: hates school boards more than I do. And, and if listeners want to test that, just Google my name and Nashville School Board and you'll have a laugh. Um, they tried to shut down my schools multiple times. And I have just a huge problem with the kinds of people often who run for these positions and what their goals are. But I think that this is much less of a story maybe than you do, Ricky. And here, here's my sense is like, number one, at the moment, and obviously new evidence could change this, it's mostly hearsay. It's one person email relaying a conversation they had with somebody else. And I think and until it's confirmed, it, it almost kind of lingers out there. I think the bigger question to me is, uh, number one, was there a valid threat uh, that would warrant the FBI's attention? And so in that case, it would be, is it something that's national in scope with some kind of national coordination that rises to the level of certain kinds of threats? I'm skeptical, but that is a big question. Um, And then I think the second question is, what is the link between this letter and uh, Garland's memo? And I, I printed out this memo and I was looking at it and it doesn't make mention of the school board letter, the Garland memo doesn't. And so my question is like, in the absence of the school board letter which may or may not have been influenced by the Department of Education, Garland probably still issues this memo,
1: right? I mean, this is a couple days later, and there's a lot of Senate questioning that happened surrounding this. It seems pretty clear that the catalyst was this letter. Um, the letter directly asked for exactly what the DOJ ultimately did. And I think, you know, I, I agree that this is not the story as much. It's making waves, so I think it's worth addressing and it could potentially become a really big story but we don't know where it's going to go yet but i think in in the short term responding to your question about whether this is something the fbi should get involved in i think you know that's a really case-by-case basis and a lot of the examples that they were pointing out like one of them is a guy was calling school board members on facebook live I don't think that's domestic terrorism. Maybe there's some other wrinkle in that story that I don't yeah. know, but that's how they presented it in their letter. Whereas in other examples, there were genuine disruptions and threats made and they cite arrests made and tickets given for trespassing, and I think, you know, it comes down to the local government and the local police are the first line of defense against this, and do we want to be using the Patriot Act which I mean, that was a, originally coming from a Republican. I that's something that I'm completely opposed to because I think it could be very intrusive into Americans' daily lives and this might be an example of that because we have you know parents doing varying degrees of disruption or sometimes just voicing causing chaos is what they said just voicing concern being loud being disruptive at some point we have to figure out is this really domestic terrorism are there instances of domestic terrorism and are the police at the local level addressing that before we get the FBI involved and it's worth noting that the national school board association did uh take back this letter because there was so much uproar about it. And this could be a huge privacy violation if it ended up being abused. And if they circumvented, if they went behind the backs of everyone to get this in the first place, like this email potentially alleges, that could be huge. But of course we can't say that for sure yet.
0: Well, that's where I think on the timing front, it, it is worth noting that even though the the school board letter came a couple of days before the the Garland memorandum, this was also like a few days in which mm-hmm. this particular issue is most salient in the American public. So like in general, most of the activity around, you know, the the public reporting, the Virginia election, this was like the, the high mm-hmm. watermark of these types of discussions in the first place. But part of it is like I try to think about what's the conspiracy. And I know it's not just about a conspiracy, but it's like if the Biden administration was conspiring to uh, have – Cordona get the NS and SBA to issue this letter so that Garland could then do this investigation. Why not just have Garland do the investigation if that's the if that's the conspiracy, right? They could just pick up the phone and be like, Garland, do this investigation. Um I think
1: that you know that potentially looks really bad to say. Mobilize the Patriot Act against American citizens on varying degrees of domestic terrorism, whether or not there are instances or not. There's clearly varying degrees, even in this letter and for the biden administration to say that without any request or any any plea for help from the school board association would be really questionable i think it, i think it's questionable even with this letter but um yeah i mean i i i don't think that we can say for sure that they circumvented anything but i think it's worth um probing what that the background of that email is and what the request is that they got from cardona
0: yeah i guess my question is like the school board association are we inventing a villain right is it like I, I I know what the school board association is because they their uh, various associations donate money to people I hate, but the like I'm not sure this is the big bad organization that all like th- that everybody's making it out to be, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Well, their own members did revolt against them. Like a lot of states revoked their support of this letter and even of the organization, and I think it's worth just questioning when a big. is aggregating that's representing all these smaller people around the country and purporting to speak for them and the people in the states where these instances are happening are saying, no, this doesn't actually mean anything to us this isn't we don't want to use the patriot act against um parents or citizens that are disrupting meetings i think that's i think that's a question worth asking And when somebody is reporting to represent people and the government is making taking action on the basis of that but there's also saying this is not representative of how i feel i think that's well, worth- of course
2: the states aren't going to ask for that if the states are in agreement with what the parents are saying to these school boards and i think Obviously, I agree totally that we shouldn't be using the Patriot Act to label parents as domestic terrorists, but I think we've got to look at the catalyst for why all this stuff is happening in the first place. Throughout 2021, there were parents who were going to these school board meetings and being very disruptive and very chaotic, all in the name of trying to stop critical race theory from being taught in their schools. And it was bigger than just these concepts of critical race theory. It was more about a lot of them just simply didn't want uncomfortable racial topics being taught in the classroom. That overlays with a history in many of these places, especially if we're talking about the South, where, you know, we're getting into a racial history here. We're getting into, you know, racism. And I think that is the reason why the Biden administration jumped to using the Department of Justice to investigate these things. Because if, in fact, these parents are going to these school boards and saying, we don't want our kids learning about this, we don't want our kids learning about that, being disruptive, possibly making threats against school boards who are going to try to put some type of CRT in the curriculum, then That does constitute something that the Department of Justice should look into because local law enforcement in most cases, and I don't want to just leap to this, you know, uh, this theory here, but in, in most cases, local law enforcement would probably be on the side of the parents. And if those parents are making credible threats to school boards, and if that's happening in multiple states, that does sound like a national issue that the Department of Justice should be uh, involved in. Again, I don't think we should be invoking the the Patriot Act, which I think never should have been passed in the first place, but that's definitely something that should be looked at on a national level if it's happening in multiple states at the same time.
1: I just, if that's happening, I think that's something that should be brought to higher levels of law enforcement. Of course, if the local law enforcement is not responding, but I think that's a case-by-case basis. And I also would just like just hear that written in the letter that was asking to invoke the DOJ. I didn't hear that, like I I heard examples of where people were arrested, not examples where the police decided not to respond to that. And so I just, I think it's dangerous to say, we're gonna invoke a nationalized effort to surveil people in order to prevent something when we don't have the example of that happening yet. If there's an example, I think that that should be, it should be a case-by-case basis because and some things that they're citing are disruptions and some things that they are citing are threats. And I think that it comes down to where it is. I mean, it's all over the country that we're talking about this too. And so I think that it's a case-by-case basis and there's nothing wrong with saying, we're gonna bring it up to the higher level, but are we gonna bring all of them up to the higher level?
0: But here's here's where I'm confused about the patriarch discussion. I'm reading this memo again and basically what it says is um I am directing the FBI working with the US Attorney to convene meetings with federal state local tribal territorial leaders. And that's basically where it ends. Like it's this is like seems like a non thing. Like I'm both unconvinced that there that there was evidence provided in this memo to justify a major federal response, but I'm also not Convinced that this memo and anything that came after it uh, stepped over any line, either. Like I haven't seen like any evidence of parents being rounded up by the FBI or anything. So I'm I'm wondering like what like is this just like a a story to sort of scratch our culture war itches, or is there something else I'm missing here? Mm-hmm. Like because this doesn't even mention the Patriot Act, but maybe I'm there's something other piece, uh, any other document
2: here. I think it's very plausible that the Biden administration is basically doing this just to say, hey we're on the side of school boards that may be coming under these. Yeah. Threats. Is this just a
0: signaling Biden administration signaling, Hey, like I got your back on CRT stuff. And then, um, the conservative media being like, oh, Biden, deep state, they're trying to round us up and neither is, neither really, is really tethered happen. to any reality.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it remains to be seen and we should continue to follow it. And I don't think that there are any examples of clear like violations of privacy that we've seen yet, but it's a question about the precedent. And if this does turn out to be some sort of kind of collusion on the back end with the National School Board Association as looking for a catalyst to use a new level of surveillance. I think that's worth looking into, but obviously we still haven't seen where these new email revelations will bring us.
2: Absolutely. Well, we've had some very heavy stories today, (laughs) a lot of really great discussions. So we're going to end things off with uh, something on a little bit of a lighter note. I I found this video uh, on TikTok uh, going around. It's actually, I think it's been taken down from TikTok recently. And I just want to play this video and then we can talk about what it is the person in this video is doing and whether this strategy actually works.
0: By the way, for those that are listening, uh, we'll we'll describe it. So stick with us. If you're just listening to us on the (laughs) podcast.
2: Yes. So if so if you're watching if you're listening to the podcast, essentially a woman I believe is in Australia uh, in six weeks her wedding she's gonna she's gonna get married and she still hasn't had COVID, so she's in this video in a nightclub hugging and and just up against all kinds of people mostly men um, uh, drinking from different glasses. Uh, basically, she's trying to purposely get COVID now so it doesn't ruin her wedding in six weeks. Is that reckless or brilliant? Well, this is a challenge to our pro-COVID stance here. I think this is a true
0: test of whether Lost Debate is as pro-Omicron as we have said we were. I I honestly don't have evidence. I don't know anymore. I honestly don't know. But what, like, what about I, the I concept
2: of trying to get COVID now so that you don't get it like for some event weeks in the future. I like, know
0: what I'm supposed to say. I'm supposed to say <laughs> I'm supposed to say this is terrible and irresponsible. But I think most people have people in their lives who talk like this. I think. Like most people are like, oh, we should, should I just get it out of the way? Like I think this is and, and I I think the science is murky enough that there are other things I want to get worked up over. Uh it's not surprising they took the video down of me though.
1: They took the video down? Yeah, I believe TikTok oh, took it down. Okay, interesting. I don't know. I mean I I kind of feel like you don't even have to go through these steps to get Omicron at this point. (laughs) Like, you just kind of have to exist and you're going to get it. So, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really feel like she's endangering people beyond what you just might be doing sitting in a restaurant, to be honest. But um, I don't know. I mean, that does – I don't blame people for – being nervous about a huge life event and then thinking, "Oh, this could screw it up," but I don't know if that's the answer necessarily. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think we talked about chickenpox parties, Omicron parties. Anyone? <laughs> I mean, is that something that's gonna catch on just so people can get it out the way? I mean, obviously, we would never advocate doing something like that, especially <laughs> with the original variants of COVID that were very, very yeah. harmful. But Omicron is that different? I think there's an in between
0: this person and uh, the people who are still like in you know pretty strict COVID procedures world. And I think it's most people who are like, look, I'm just gonna go about my life. I know the mm-hmm. risks mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get it. Like that's how a lot of people yeah. are. And uh, so that's why, although like, if I were close to this person, I would advise them on a couple of things. I, I don't think it should warrant outrage cause it's silly and it's, but it's in consequence, not much
2: different than the way most people go about this issue. So are you guys coming to my Omicron party? Is that basically what I'm hearing? Yeah. You're, you're invited. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Well, we've had some really interesting conversations on the show today, but real quick, we do want to address a message we got. I believe it was on Instagram about something we talked about uh, in on the last show Tuesday. Uh, Ricky, do you want to address that real quick?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we got a listener comment that was concerned about my comparison of rates of vaccine myocarditis with deaths from COVID and suggested that I should be comparing it with rates of tissue and organ damage that can come from infection and potential issues with long COVID. And I completely agree that it's not a one-to-one one comparison obviously myocarditis is largely a short-term symptom that people are getting that they're in the short-term recovering from and could have long-term complications just because of what we know about the heart as an organ um, versus death is obviously a much more serious outcome like you could it's not a one-to-one comparison I agree with that entirely and the reason that I brought the myocarditis up though is because I don't think we were having a conversation about whether or not you should get the vaccine I'm not going to take any stance on whether any individual should get the vaccine based on any risk. I think that there are clear benefits for huge swaths of the population, but I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. The reason I brought that statistic up is because we were discussing whether the government should be mandating it. And you know, for the 18 to 24 age group, we have a major study that seems to suggest that 1 in 1800 and, or 1860 men of that age range are getting myocarditis. And so I think there's a lot of other roles or factors at play like long COVID, like um, potential organ damage that is coming from COVID itself. And there are a lot of multifactorial analyses, including do you have a preexisting condition? Do you live with a parent who has a preexisting condition? There's so much at play and that's a conversation that I think is between you and your doctor and not between the government and the government. And so I think this is valid when you're talking about should you get the vaccine. I think it's worth bringing up that there's a risk worth looking at in a certain subset of the population that we're seeing. And so therefore, sweeping mandates are, in my opinion, unethical. I think it's an individual choice. And these are the conversations that we should be having when we make those individual choices.
0: Well, just to add, you know, you might have noticed listeners and viewers that in past two episodes, we've now addressed comments at the end of the show. And this is something we want to do regularly. So if you're listening at home or watching at home, uh, you could shoot us messages. You could either send us a DM, you could tag us in something and whether it's a video or a comment and, you know, it could just be a question you want us to address. It could be something you think we missed. It could be adding context or even support for something we do. And we want to engage with you more and more. And so we're going to do that at the end of as many episodes as we possibly
2: can. Yes. And keep the questions about the topics and not like the outfits And things like that I'm because, cool with those well, Especially some, this outfit Well yeah, yeah But I'm sure there are Certain people that That won't like that outfit Well I mean, for
0: those <laughs> listeners I have a Bills shirt on I, I'm a huge Bills fan And we got yeah. a big game Against the uh, New England Cheatriots uh, what, what, what did you call them? Well it's a uh, Cheatwood Max team
2: I, yeah. You know I think that's Well creative name Nice yeah. creative name But yeah. also for rookie QB You know doing some great things. So we'll see what ends up happening. But uh, we want to thank you all for watching us. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Leave us a uh, rating if you listen to us on Spotify, wherever you hear your podcast, and we will see you next time.